How many times have you heard this line, follow your heart, listen to your heart? That is a very, very well-known advice in our culture today. Follow your heart. It will lead you to happiness. But did you know that's not what God's Word says? Listen to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and those whose heart turns away from the Lord. To trust only in your heart without trusting in God is folly. But we hear things like, in romance, trust your heart, in science, trust your mind, in politics, trust the government. But Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful and not trustworthy. And he predicts that anyone who rejects God and trusts only in their heart will suffer severe consequences in life. To actually believe we can solve our own problems without trusting in God is the greatest folly that we can ever know. In our culture, in our world today, the universal rejection of God has left humanity very morally weakened. Jeremiah, in this whole chapter, is, is, gives a warning to the people, and it's so relevant today because the warning is, do not trust yourselves. Whether it's in marriage, don't trust yourself to make the marriage work. You need God. If it's in parenting, don't trust yourself to raise those kids. It won't work. If it's on your job or your business, don't trust yourself. Trust God. In the church, don't trust your heart or your mind to be able to figure out the problems. Only God. How many times have authoritarian leadership in the church taken us astray because people trusted them? Authoritarian leadership is always reluctant to be accountable. There's no need to be accountable because they're in charge. But the sinfulness of the human heart leads us astray, whether it is in leadership or whether it is in our own lives. The Apostle Peter in his letters tells of a correlation between the sinfulness of the human heart and false doctrine, how the two often correlate and how they lead people astray. Second Peter 2, 3. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. And verse 10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. We are in a study of 1 Samuel. We're looking at of the life of Saul. And Saul's life is a remarkable study of human failure, despite the fact that he is very qualified. He has a lot of qualities. He is brave. He is a military leader. And the most, most amazing thing, he had some of the most incredible opportunities, but he squandered them. With Saul, it all boils down to one mistake in his life. And this mistake is a critical mistake, and it is so relevant to all of us today. It's his disobedience to the word of the Lord, disobedience to the commandments of God. There are two critical occasions where Saul blatantly disobeyed God. They are so important to the writer of the, of the book of 1 Samuel that he dedicates one whole chapter to each event. 
The first one was in chapter 13, which we covered, but I review it just so you remember. This is when Saul was told by Samuel to wait at Gilgal for him to come. And Samuel would come and offer sacrifices. But the enemy's numbers were growing, and Saul felt pressured because Samuel was not coming, not coming, that he went ahead and offered sacrifices, doing the work that only belonged to a priest. Samuel confronted him and said, What a fool you have been, Saul, to have disobeyed the Lord's word. Now in chapter 15, Saul blatantly disobeys God again. This becoming a very, very critical point. In fact, after the incident that we'll look at in chapter 15 today, and it's so large, I've divided it up into two parts, and we'll see the next part next week. Saul will never again ever see Samuel. He will see him after his death, but it will break the relationship. Indication, God had abandoned Saul, and so has God's prophet, has abandoned the relationship with Saul. Let's begin with... Samuel lays out instructions for Saul. Chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Kings were everywhere. In fact, they're kings that still exist today in our modern world. Still countries being governed by kings or sometimes we call them dictators. But this king, the king of Israel, was a very different king. And for three different reasons that had been laid out very clearly and repeatedly to Saul, and once even in writing, here are the three major differences. Saul was not king by virtue of some birthright, because when you're a king, your descendants continue to hold the throne. That was not the case with Saul. He was chosen by God. He wasn't chosen for his cleverness or his ingenuity, but he was chosen by God. The second thing is that Saul was required to submit to God's prophet, Samuel. So he wasn't the ultimate authority. He was king over the people, but he was to be respectful and obedient to the word of the Lord that came through Samuel. And then the third aspect was that the people were God's people, not his people. He was king to God's people. Three major differences. There were kings all around him, and they were the king. But this king was different. That had been laid out so clearly to Samuel, by Samuel to Saul, but had even been written down for him. In Saul, as we looked at it, he never looked at the people the way he has been asked to look at them. Look at this verse, an example. And chapter 14, verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, curse be anyone who eats food before evening comes before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. You can see the attitude. Saul sees the people as his people and he sees himself as the ultimate authority. Back in chapter 12, an example of how this had been clearly laid out to Saul. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follows the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Very clear. It was a warning to the people and to Saul. 
Those three principles, actually in principle, are the definition of what uh, biblical stewardship is. As a, as a Christian, we're never to look at what we own in this life as our own. The money we have in the bank or financial institutions, we aren't to look at that as my money, our money. We're to look at it as God's money. And we are the steward of it. We aren't to look at our business as that's my business or that's, that's my income. We aren't to look at our kids and say those are my kids. We are to look at them as loaned to us from God. And eventually they'll get to the place where we send them off. We are to consider our family, our work, our business, our church as belonging to Him. So for every pastor, it's not my church. It's His church, His people. Those principles are still very valid for us to live our lives and to respect His authority. It holds in check the ability of someone to be unaccountable. We are accountable. We are accountable to God. We are accountable to others. Anywhere a church or any business, but I'll use the example of a church, sets itself up with no accountability to no one, that leader eventually will get in trouble and the people will be in trouble because we are always accountable to God. And we do that by being accountable to others. So in the incident we're going to look at today, Samuel begins by saying that Saul needs to listen to God's words. Verse 1 again, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is where it all starts, the ability to listen. In the Hebrew, it actually says, hear the sound of the voice. Hear the sound of the word. There are many, many sounds. Hearing a piece of music played on the piano or your favorite instrument or hearing the birds in an early morning or a baby's cry or the explosion. We, we identify all these different sounds. But in the writing, the Hebrew says to Saul, hear the sound of the voice of the Lord. It's interesting that it's written that way because it's written this way back in Deuteronomy 4.10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live. In the Hebrew again, it actually says, hear the sound of my voice. So when you call your family member, you don't have to identify yourself, right? I don't call my wife up and say, hey, this is Boyd. All right. One of my sons call me. I, I don't or I call them. I don't say, hey, this is your dad. They actually know my voice, although people sometimes mix the three of us up because our voices are similar. But we know the sound of the voice of people who are in our intimate circle. Is God intimate enough to you? And are you intimate enough to God to hear the sound of his voice? I like the phrase in the Hebrew. Saul listened to the sound of his words. In Deuteronomy 4.12, the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. Here you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. So the first thing, Saul, you need to know is that you need to listen to my voice, which is the voice of the Lord conveying to you his words. Then God gave this command to Saul in verses 2 and 3. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belong to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now the Amalekites were hostile people, hostile toward just about everybody, but they had been very hostile toward God's people. This is about 40 or 50 years later after they attacked the Israelites on several different occasions. Moses, when he handed leadership over to Joshua, he said in Deuteronomy, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked you, attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of the Amalekites under heaven. Do not forget. Oh, when you read something like this, it's a terrible thing. And I would have difficulty omitting this because it's in the Bible. There are many critics of the Bible who say that this is genocide or ethnic cleansing. All I know is that the Scripture tells us that God is the judge of all the earth. Listen to Genesis 18.25. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? There's an interesting passage in Luke. Some people actually confront Jesus with a very difficult question. Let me read it, and then I want to comment on the passage. It's Luke 13, verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This is when Pilate ordered a massacre of Jews in the temple. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? So that's the question. Were those Galileans by Pilate killed because they were worse sinners? Did they get what they deserved? Look at Jesus' answer. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Shalom fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now if you listen to Jesus, he's actually saying we all deserve to die. If you live, it's God's mercy that has allowed you to live. I cannot explain passages like this, don't intend to, although I know it's 3,000 years ago, the world was a very different place, and God brought the same kind of judgment on Israel that Israel is bringing on the Amalekites. If you read the book of Lamentations, babies were killed, pregnant women, it's a horrible thing. This is God's people and God's judgment being returned through the Babylonians. I do know that judgment comes, and it's certainly not right to say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment. The God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. God's judgment hasn't changed. His morality hasn't changed. Jesus, when he came in his death and his resurrection, he became, from that point forward, the judge who will judge all, according to the Bible. But the world has experienced judgment in many ways for the abomination of sin and undoing. Take this country. Take the abomination of slavery in the United States. If you actually really think about it, how was it ever possible 
that there were four million black slaves in the United States. And for decades in Britain and the entire British Empire, slavery had already been condemned and already stopped in this country. And there was no way to stop it. They tried stopping it so that it didn't grow anymore, and they tried stopping it so that you couldn't bring any more slaves, but it couldn't be stopped. So it took a war, a war that claimed 700,000 lives at a time when there was only about 33 million people in the United States. The percentage of the population that died in the war is striking. Now, the president, Abraham Lincoln, and many believe that God's judgment was involved. I have no doubt about it. And there will be judgment for the abomination of abortion that takes place in this country. Did you notice taking things out of context is one of, one of the ways that you can introduce a new story? You remember back in 2020, then when they're tearing down statues of heroes of the Civil War? I mean, I don't, we don't all agree with history, but that is our history, whether it's good or bad. I was thinking the other day as I was driving down 55, and there's all kinds of billboards about marijuana, but you'll never see the word marijuana. What do you see? It's called cannabis. And I saw one up around Lindbergh that actually doesn't even, cannabis is real little. It's called nature's med. Talk about changing the language. And in the abortion, for instance, you never, ever, the people who are for abortion never use the word abortion. They never use the word abortion. Reproductive rights. That's a long ways from abortion, isn't it? But that's the way you sell your story, is to change the words. All that to say, I cannot and will not try to defend what happened here, but I will try to trust God as being the judge of all the earth. Let's continue with the story. So Saul now is commanded to eliminate, to eradicate the Amalekites. There is a group of people close to them, so Saul gives them warning to move away in verse 4. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 Judah from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And verse 6, then he said to the Canaanites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them, for you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. So he's setting himself up. He's got an army of over 200,000. He moves away a people that is not included in this judgment. Now Saul launches his attack, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilar to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. So we get the sense here that King Saul is obeying. He's carrying out this long anticipated judgment. God Nowhere does God strike instantly. This judgment has taken about 40 or 50 years to reach fruition. But while we have heard the specific orders that were given or commands that were given to Saul, look how he carried it out in verse 8. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and all his people. He totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul said, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. 
The word is repeatedly used, again, the same thing of Saul's discretion. He chooses what pleases him, whether it's the best, the despised, or what is inferior, destroy that. And he allows the king to live. The king, he spared the king's life, and he spares the best, and everything else is destroyed. The writer wants to make sure that we understand that all this originates with Saul. This is Saul who's giving the orders. There's something very odd about his action here. We'll finish that part of the story next week, but I want to use the rest of my time to focus on verses 10 and 11, because something very, very important is said to Samuel from the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Literally, he has not fulfilled my words. His actions have not been in accordance with my commands. The simple fact is, these are terrible words. I regret that I have made Saul. It seems, I read a lot of different translations, and it seems that they struggle with actually finding a way to translate the Hebrew because we don't have an exact, uh, exact words that convey the same message in Hebrew. That happens from one language to the next. Here's the message. Then God spoke to Samuel. I am sorry I ever made Saul king. He's turned his back on me. He refuses to do what I tell him. Now, it's an astonishing thing that God actually enters in into the human race and feels the pain from our mistakes, from our sin. If you've ever read the book of Job, it can be a very difficult book. It has a very simple purpose, and that is to understand the benefit of suffering, because Job suffers in that book. And he second purpose of the book is to show us how faithful and how he maintained his faith. But in the middle of the book, there are some friends that come to comfort Job. There's not much comforting going on. And if these are Job's friends, he's, pretty, he's in pretty poor company. But they, they say the oddest things to him. Most of them seem very arrogant. But after the big shots have comforted Job with all of their wise statements, which happened to be at the end of the book, God says, I'll interpret it for you, everything these guys have said is a bunch of baloney. Just boiling it down. But after the main comforters have talked to Job, there's one younger man who says, I've listened to all these old guys talk, and now I'm going to tell you how it is. His name is Elihu. He begins in chapter 35. He talks for a couple chapters. Listen to what he says as he begins his speech to Job. Verse 5. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? Elihu believes that you could sin, you could do wrong. It has no effect on God because he is so holy and we are sinful. But he is definitely mistaken because the Word of God teaches us in so many passages that our sin affects God. Just as Saul's disobedience affected God and brought, this, brought God to the place where he reveals to Samuel, I'm literally sorry 
that I made this man and I gave him these opportunities. The depth of the tragedy recorded here. It is the same thing recorded in the days of Noah, Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human race was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Then there is Samuel's anger. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Who was Samuel angry at? I know he's angry at Saul. He's probably angry at himself. He's probably angry at God. He's angry. This is one of those situations where here the prophet of God is so, so disturbed. And he carries this huge, huge burden all night. In verse, verse 15, Saul had been warned back in chapter 12, but if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. But none of that had had an effect on Saul. He was going to do what he wanted to do. When he got into situation, he was going to make his own decision. Now, he will give us the rationale for it next week. That's a whole other sermon. He's going to tell us why it was better to do what he did than obey the Lord. And he will give us this detailed explanation. Amazing thing about it is people are still using that same exclamation to disobey God today. It's amazing, 3,000 years ago, and it's if the spirit of Saul lives today in Christians. As we've seen here, Saul the king has failed, disobeyed deliberately. But his failure points us to one king who has not failed, one king whom the gospels, the writers of the epistles point us to. We are always disappointed when human beings fail us, and we should never believe that they will not. If we ever set people on a pedestal and believe that they cannot fail, we will be disappointed because they will. But there is one who has not. When Peter was preaching to Cornelius' house, he said, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. There will be a judge. These terrible things that have happened and will happen and continue to happen in the world, there is a judge. Paul wrote to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. And he charges Timothy to fulfill a faithful ministry of a pastor. There are many today who never want to preach that Jesus is our judge, because the Bible teaches Jesus is our Savior, He His love. And this part about Him being judged, it's not friendly. It's easier to just drop it. In Acts, Paul said, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left him with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him soon after. Paul, in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, he confronts these Greeks who are the smartest people in the face of the earth. And what in the world would Paul say to them? You would want to be 
very, very smart. You want to try to make no. Paul's message is about the one who will judge, Jesus Christ. Jesus is appointed judge of all. This is what John wrote in the book of Revelation. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of all the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And when Paul was writing the Thessalonians, listen to this. All this, and, he, and this refers to the wickedness of the world on Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, but it's so close to what's happening today. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. That is going to happen. In this world that is so prone with sadness and sickness and brokenness, did you know that this day, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels? He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's an amazing thing to me in the past 10 years how the world has become so connected technologically. I was going by what, we, what in Argentina we call a visa. These are just huts that are made that might have 100,000 living in one visa. And they're made out of whatever you can find. And they might, they might be right in the, in the center of Buenos Aires. They might be in every city. But you have these people. There are no streets, just about as wide as that aisle. And you, as we were down there in April, as we were driving down the freeway, you look off, you see this one Vigia. It's, it's called the Vigia of Buenos Aires. It's the largest one in the country. Probably 100,000 in that one Vigia. And you can, and the traffic permitted us because it's bumper to bumper. And I'm looking out there. And you could see cell phones by the thousands. People watching cell phones, going around with cell phones. And this is a country where cell phones are, very, are twice as much as they are here. But I didn't see anybody without a cell phone. What is the deal with cell phones? That's how we're being connected. That's how we see. How would it be possible for the whole world to see Jesus? Probably through the technology that has happened so fast. But we will see. And there's lots of scriptures telling us that the whole world is going to see Jesus. When the, man, when the man, first man walked on the moon, I, I happened to be in Guyana, South America, and didn't have so much technology, but I was told it was going to happen. I walked down the street where they sold, they sold TVs, and I was outside a store with uh, probably 500 people watching this little TV through the window. And can you imagine how far we've advanced since then? But we're all going to see when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He comes in judgment and he comes to rescue those who know him. He will punish those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So what is the, the whole point of looking at an example of Saul? It's an actual very easy point and that is to learn obedience to what we know, to the truth that we know, to not be deceived, to rationalize that living in this world, we should make our own decisions, come to our own, follow our own heart, 
Even if it contradicts God's word, we should learn to follow God. Even James, in the book of James, he says, don't make statements like, I'm going to the next city, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go over there, I'm going to buy this business, I'm going to do this. James says, say, the Lord willing, I'm going to Nashville. The Lord willing, I'm, I'm going to Chicago. This attitude of your life is in God's hands. There's a parable that Jesus told. He told about 50 of them, but he told this parable about two sons, not the prodigal, because that's about two sons. It's a lesser known story. And it appears to us in Matthew. So these, these two sons, their father called them, and he says to the first son, he says, I need you to go out into the vineyard, and I need you to go out there and work. And the first son says, I will not go, Dad. I'm not going to do it. The dad was disappointed, but the son goes out, and he goes out, and he starts thinking, and he says, no, nah, that's not right. And he changes his mind, and he goes back to the vineyard, and he starts working. And then the second son, he says to his dad, sure, Dad, but he never goes. Well, there's none of us that have always obeyed, none of us that are pure, none of us that are without sin, but how much better it is, though you have disobeyed, to do right. And Jesus used this parable in the condemnation of tax collectors and prostitutes and sinful people to say, sure, they have disobeyed, but they have realized they're wrong and they've come to the Father's house. They've come to the vineyard. They've come to obey. May we learn from the story of one who had so much to offer, such incredible opportunities, and he squandered them. God has given all of us opportunities. I don't care what age you are. I don't care what station you are. You have been given opportunities right now. And this is the first day of the rest of your life. Tell God you want to be listening to the sound of his words and what he says, you want to do it. That means studying his word and enveloping it into your life and living by it and ever how the Holy Spirit leads you to be obedient to him.